You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me today, diving into part seven of our series on the miracles of Jesus. You know, for a long time, Kelsey and I have kind of been consumed with this idea of the fullness of God, of everything that he has for us. If there's anything out there that we could learn or experience or encounter, we want it all. We don't want to leave anything on the table. Do you know it is possible to be people of great need and of great faith and actually see miracles and still miss out on the fullness of God? Today, we talk about a group of men who all had a tremendous encounter with the Lord, but only one really got everything that God had for him. And what was that one thing that unlocked that door? Stay with us. This is from The Bridge on Sunday morning, August 1st. Before I fully dive in, can I read a passage and then not preach on it? Is that allowed? Just a short little, okay. I'm going to read this, throw this in at the beginning and let it simmer in the stew that we're going to make here. And you might not think about it again, but just you will know that this ingredient is in there, okay? Genesis 3, 8, and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these friends that you've gathered. And I thank you for just a sense of grace among friends. And Lord, as we commit some time this morning to the study of your word, we ask that you would unfold it before us, just like an accordion, just unfold it so that we could see the full depth and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember doing things as a child and then wondering what your mom or your dad was going to say or do when they found out? Remember that? On my, it was a birthday. I don't remember, it was like 10th, 12th, in that, in that range where no boy should fully be held accountable for his thoughts. Um, it was my birthday, and we had some friends over and, and some kids running around. I don't really remember what was going on, but I do remember I'm standing out in our farmyard, and I have a, a rubber ball and a softball bat, and for whatever reason, I throw it in the air, and I take a swing at it, and if you understood how coordinated I am, you would not really be concerned, because the chance of me actually hitting the ball, not high. But by some miracle of God, I connect with this rubber ball and it shoots off of that back like a rocket headed straight towards our front door. It's also funny in a moment of crisis how quickly even the mind of a 12-year-old boy can work. And I remember as it leaves the bat thinking, I hope nobody comes out the door Now, nobody did immediately, and so the ball hits the plate glass in the door, shatters it, and bounces off. About 10 seconds later, my mom, who still loves me, I think, I haven't put her under this kind of pressure before, but my mom opens the door, looks out, sees the broken glass, sees the broken window, sees the ball, sees me with the bat, but knowing my lack of coordination still has a hard time figuring out what's happened. I mean, the chances of me hitting the ball and breaking the glass just aren't that hard. But I remember thinking in that moment, 
what are my mom or dad going to do when they find out? What are they going to think? We look for our parents' reaction, whether it be in anger or shame or pride or blessing, and we ponder what is their response to what I have just done. And because of that conditioning in our life, we come to know God as a father, and we spend a lot of time in our life wondering what happens when God finds out. What happens when he figures out what we've done? And it propagates a lot of a sense of shame in our life, causing people to cower from God when it's not even reflective of reality. Yes, God does have a response to our actions and our motivations, but the story of God and man is way more about God waiting to see what man's going to do than it is man waiting to see what God's going to do. If you know God you can generally have some sense of idea of how he's going to respond to things like righteousness or worship or sin. I mean, you kind of know how he responds to those things. But of the two of you, he is far more consistent in his reactions to things. We are the wild cards. He puts man in the garden, and he waits to see how he responds. He sends Moses down the mountain with the tablets, and he waits to see how people respond. He watches his son crucified as an innocent man hang on a cross and he waits for thousands of years to see how you and I respond. How we respond to what God is doing often dictates if he does more or he stops right there. And sometimes our, our inaccurate or unfair response to what he has done sets artificial limits in the miraculous in our lives. Sometimes God is waiting for our response to what he did before he does any more. That's why I walk through the garden in the cool of the day saying, where are you? I was going to wrap this series up this week, but in, in kind of reading and studying, I want to just go a, a few more weeks. I have so enjoyed teaching through the miracles of Jesus. I think we're on, on week seven. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 17. We're going to make a pit stop before we get there, but mostly that's where we're going to be all morning. Just for context here, Jesus' miracles at this point in his ministry are starting to irritate people. Like people are getting a little bit tweaked at Jesus about these miracles. And while we're going to be in Luke 17, uh, the previous miracle happened in Luke 14, where Jesus heals a man of dropsy or uh, edema, the swelling of the body, the swelling uh, just all over you, retain water and swell. Some scholars believe that the religious people of the day actually brought the man who has dropsy to the meeting to see what God would do, to see what Jesus would do. Like, he's a plant. They bring him along on the Sabbath to see what Jesus would do. Just a side note, people with a religious spirit do not care about you. Can you imagine? Jesus goes to heal this guy. The people get mad, and the guy's like, you brought me to the meeting. You invited me here. People with a religious spirit do not care about you. They focus on the preservation of themselves and of their traditions. They can't even tell the difference between themselves and their traditions. That's how much identity they get out of tradition. And so they bring him here and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. This is all in Luke 14. The gall of the Lord to move on the Lord's day. They're not the last batch of people with a religious spirit that would like to keep their religion and their God in separate boxes, okay? 
But following the miracle in Luke 14, Jesus teaches, probably in several different settings. We get to Luke 17, where Jesus met this group of people who were needy, they were bold, they had tremendous faith, and most of them did not receive everything that he had for them. I want to talk today about people who Jesus favored. He blessed them. He did a miracle on their part, and they still didn't get all that he had for them. Luke 17, starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers. Okay, if you're writing things down, write down. They were people of tremendous need, these 10 lepers. Now, scholars kind of teach this in two different camps based on their understanding of leprosy. There are two ways of looking at this. Some believe they have classic leprosy, what you and I call, you know, the very specific diagnosis of leprosy. It's the deadening of the tissues and the dying of the nerves of extremities. And when you uh, see pictures of, of lepers that are missing fingers or missing arms, it's not because leprosy caused the thing to fall off. It is because they, have, they can't feel anything and they injure themselves. Gangrene sets in, they need to amputate or then it falls off. So it's a deadening. You kind of die from the outside in. And there are some who believe each of these guys actually had full-on what we call leprosy. We'll call that the leprosy camp of understanding, okay? Then there's another way of looking at it, because in the Bible, they would often use the word leprosy as a catch-all for all kinds of skin diseases. You might actually have leprosy. You might have um, eczema. You might have a really bad rash. Whatever the case, they would lump that all under leprosy. We'll call that the leprosy and more camp. I don't think it matters because both of those groups, be they in great physical danger or the fact that, you know, I've just got a rash, it's going to get better, both of them were under the same Old Testament laws regarding leprosy. They might have had classic leprosy, they might have had something very minor, but they were both pushed to the margins of society. Those identified in that culture as lepers had to leave their homes, had to leave their families, had to leave their place of work, and they had to gather with people with which the only thing they had in common was leprosy, whether it was real leprosy or not. Disconnected from the local economy, they'd have to scavenge for food and for supplies in a culture that didn't discard much. They were forbidden to have any contact with anybody, any family members, and when they did approach people, they had to yell out a warning to them. They couldn't go to the marketplace. They were forbidden to go to worship. They were forced out of the situation where they were connected to family or work or God. Do you think it mattered to those people if they had genuine leprosy or not? Almost no, because the lifestyle was the same. When you are ostracized, when you are pushed away, or you are rejected from people, you don't think about the reason that much. You just think, I'm alone. It's not as if their understanding would make that go away. Things that make sense don't always make them feel right. Some of you know what it feels like to be pushed to the edge of the camp. You have family members that are pressing on you. Some of you actually, I was talking with somebody this morning, there's strife in between your family over these dumb things. And you felt that a little bit of, I, I feel pressed to the edge of the camp. All of us at some point have felt some level of rejection. 
There's times where I have felt rejected, and I've looked back and I thought, now why did they do that? Why did I respond that way? Why did those people respond, but those people didn't? And that all stings, and we ask, why, why, why? Somebody asked me this week, or a couple weeks ago, really stuck with me, do you think you'd feel better about what you went through if you understood why it happened? No. I don't think I'd feel better about some of the things I've gone through if I had an understanding of why. Some of us are stumbling and we're afflicted and it's not even clear what the exact problem is, but we are feeling the weight of being pressed to the outside. And like lepers, we are in people of deep need. We don't need a reason. We don't need an explanation. We don't need a narrow diagnosis. We don't even need closure. We actually need Jesus. When we are in need, do we look for a reason of why it is this way or do we look to him? The last few decades have been really decades of uh, self-exploration and self-understanding. People are arguably more distracted with options in life while simultaneously consuming their own personal constitution and makeup than ever before. Say, Randy, what are you talking about? We are becoming self-experts on ourselves. And it's, it's not a super recent thing. It's been coming for decades. You know, 20 years ago, we all took the Myers-Briggs. Remember that? Some of you remember that. Some of you are actually too young. You, you escaped the Myers-Briggs. Okay? But it divided us all up into little categories, and then that went away, and then the disc test came along, and that was simpler. We could only be one of four. And, and, and then that went away, and then it came in the Enneagram, and oh, now we've got ten. And You know, I'm not really speaking about for these or against these, although if you knew what the next thing coming down the pike was going to be, you could be a billionaire. I'm arguing for the next thing to be called the Randy Graham, <laughs> where I predict what your personality is based on your Chipotle order. You know, something very scientific. I'm not against those things. I'm taking all the tests. I'm not saying anything positive or negative about any of those things. But I do know that specifically learning what we are like does not take care of our problem. Understanding you does not fix you. And like these 10 lepers, we don't ultimately need a diagnosis. We need a healer. Like us, these people are in tremendous need. So go back to Luke 17. It says, as he entered the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They were people of tremendous need, but they were people of tremendous boldness. Most of you understand the psychological effect of the long term of difficulty. We've all endured short term things, but the long term thing, I mean, who'd have thought 18 months we'd still be talking about masks. We have an, we've got some idea of how this wears us down. You know, we were told, just flatten the curve. Two weeks, all it takes. And here we are now. And that has worn on some of you in different ways. Some of you have been very compliant. And there's been mandates and you've gone with others. Are you like, so help me, I will never do this again. You were all at different, and the, the weight of it over time wears us out. And there are things in life that are 10 and 100 times harder than this. We're going bonkers over masks. There are times when extended need or extended difficulty serves to deplete us of any kind of drive. And you just want to quit. 
How many of you, when you saw Quentin Lucas announce a ban for Kansas City, just kind of went, you're just like, ah, here we go again. It depletes us of hope. And when hope is gone, we start to wither. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us hope deferred, put off, delayed, makes the heart sick. It, it dries us up. And some of you have lived for a long time in a significant realm of de deferred hope over things much more difficult than masks. You've hoped for healing, and it's not come. You've hoped for the salvation of a child for years, and you haven't seen it yet. You've hoped for opportunity, and you felt like there has been no opportunity You've hoped to move on and you can't. And the long-term effect of that delayed hope has been a sort of a rot on your heart and you feel hollow inside. These 10 lepers saw something in Jesus. It was the potential to have a need or a desire fulfilled. And they were able to press past that dryness and that emptiness to say with great boldness, Jesus, over here, given their long-term need, it's remarkable that they even had the wherewithal to appeal for help. Jesus, over here. No, no, don't come near us, the leprosy thing. See, at a distance, though, we need you. You know what the greatest motivator for boldness is? It's just desperation. It's just, it's just the sense of, some of you are going, I feel very desperate. You are not far from encountering boldness when you come to the realization that I can't make anything any different. When your longstanding issues and struggles get you to a point of boldness, you begin to pray in a different way that you did not have before your season of affliction. There are needy people everywhere. Where will God find bold people? Okay, in this group, there are needy people, but where will God find bold people who for a moment will take their eyes off their legitimate need and how they feel and what it makes them feel like and turn their eyes to Jesus and say, over here, we need you. Some of you don't feel too bold, but the very fact that this is pricking your heart says there is faith there. You know that faith and doubt can exist in the same, in the same container. And it doesn't take much faith. This is a faith like a mustard seed can change things. He can move on that. You are that close to going from just being in need to being bold. It doesn't take much. These were people of tremendous need, people of tremendous boldness, and they exhibited in a way you might not catch if you read it quickly, really tremendous faith. Go back to Luke 17, verse 14. And when he saw them, so Jesus, okay, lepers or eczema or whatever you have, I see you over there. He saw them and he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Tremendous need, tremendous boldness, tremendous faith. Why is Jesus sending him to the priests? It seems like most of Jesus' difficulty had to do with the religious order of the day. Like why, why do this? Because that was the route by which someone who was a leper could be reintroduced to society. Were he to heal them, they still needed to go to the priests, get their note, you know, get whatever it took to, to be reintroduced. Leviticus 14, 1 through 3, the Lord spoke to Moses, said, this will be the law of the leprous person on the day of his cleansing. 
He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. You don't get to say, I had leprosy and now I'm healed. You had to go be verified. Can you imagine the priests sitting around getting their assignments passed out? It's like, oh, what assignment you get? Oh, holy of holies, good for me, you know. What'd you get? Oh, I'm on calf killing duty. What'd you get? Leper duty. Oh. Nobody wants leper duty. Go out, sit in the edge of the camp, wait for people, you know. What do you think? Yeah, you're looking good, Charlie. You can go back. You know, who wants leper duty? Keep in mind that when they left to go be inspected, they still had leprosy. It says they were healed on their way. As they go, did he say go to the priests? I, I still got it. Go to the priest. But I'm, you know, leprosy, I'm not half the man I used to be. You know, he's like, I can't go. He's like, go. Go to the priest. And as they go, they are healed. It is possible to be in great need and have great boldness, but lack the faith that it takes to see what you are asking for in its fullness. The need's legitimate. The boldness is real. Faith is what he is looking for, and it is how he responds. Who healed them? Jesus did. When did he do it? After they did what he told them to do. What is the word or the promise the Lord has given you that lays dormant in your life because you are unwilling to act? What what is he wanting to do in you and through you that would begin to fulfill what you are asking of him, but you have been reluctant to follow? I just, this is one of those things I wish we could have mic'd up the lepers. Put a mic on these guys. Why are we going to see the priest? Because Jesus is going to heal. Why did he, why, he just, can you just do what he told you to do? Sometimes he requires you to move on his word before you see his hand move. I'd like to see his hand move first. His word moved first. Sometimes you have to do what you're told before he actually fulfills his word. Sometimes he lays out a real clear, simple plan, and the moment you step onto that path, you begin to see breakthrough in your life. Why does he do that? Would it not be easier if he just, you know, Benny Hinn style, kawoosh, and 10 lepers are just suddenly healed? Because the mo- obedience is the most visible expression of love. It really is. I have very tender-hearted little children. They are not perfect. Very tender-hearted. And so very often when we get into a difficulty or a disagreement, it's a little tumultuous. And very often they come to me at the end of the day, I love you, Dad. I know that, but obedience is the most visible expression of love. I don't question their love, but I do want their obedience. And he is saying, if you want to express your love, then express it through obedience first. This was a remarkable group of people. Just think about it. There's 10 of them. In spite of all their adversity, they understood their need. All 10 of them were bold. 10 out of 10 exhibited faith. They all turned. I mean, they all did this. 
But catch this twist. You can know your own need. You can be bold before God. You can walk in faith, experience a miracle, and still be found lacking at the end of the day, not responding like you should and not receiving all that God has for you. You ever heard the expression, leave something on the table? It's where something is offered to you, but for whatever reason, you don't take it all. Maybe you go and you interview for a job and they they say, well, we think we have a job for you. What do you think you need for salary? Instant panic, right? Because you don't want to go too high and not get the job. You don't want to go too low and leave something on the table. Then you find out, well, you tell them this amount and they go, okay, we can do that. And you go, talk on it because they would have done this much. And you walk away having left something on the table. Of these 10 needy, bold, full of faith, seeing healing people, nine of them left something on the table and did not get the fullness of what God had for them. Luke 17, 11 to 18. And I mean, nine, nine of these 10 would have said, it's been a great day, glory to God, church was awesome. And they did not receive everything God had for them. Luke 17, and then one of them, when they saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? It's like, when Jesus asks questions, Jesus knows the answer. Were not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You know, over the past few years, one of the things that has made me crazy has been the racialization of the news. It just makes me nuts. Now, there are times when the race of the people in the story make a difference, but not often. And yet, in the culture that we're in, Anytime there is a crime, we find out what the race is and where it's just. And so I'm a little hypersensitive to all this, and I get to this, and I'm like, Jesus, why did you have to bring race or ethnicity into this? Why, why did you have to point out that the one guy who came to get healed was a Samaritan? It seems what he's inferring here is these other nine actually were not Samaritans, and it was another expression of how people, his own people, rejected him. He's saying the least likely of these 10 came back to express gratitude, making what he was about to do all the more miraculous because he's doing it for a Samaritan. Before we get into the gratitude brought by the Samaritan, let's talk about the other nine that Jesus looked for. Where, where'd they go? Were they blessed? Oh, greatly. Did they appreciate it? I'm sure they did. I mean, if you ever had leprosy and then not had leprosy, not having leprosy is better. Have you ever had a need and got that need answered? Not having the need is better. Did they appreciate it? I'm sure they did. What did they do? Probably went back home to their families. Hey, I'm home. They were probably overwhelmed with appreciation. They may have teared up as they told them what Jesus had done for them. But there is a difference. Hear me. There's a difference between appreciation and gratitude. Those are not the same thing. And the failure to go from appreciation to gratitude actually cost them significantly something that they didn't even know it cost them. You can almost hear Jesus, like the father in the garden, 
Where are you? Where are you? I know this is a bit nuanced, but I think you'll understand. Appreciation does not equal gratitude. To appreciate something is to recognize the worth of something. To be cognizant of what it is. To recognize what God has done. I recognize that. I appreciate it. Nine out of ten appreciated it. Only one expressed his gratitude. Gratitude is the quality of being thankful. And the difference between gratitude and appreciation is gratitude is expressed. It is possible to appreciate something and never express your gratitude for it. Some of you come into worship on a Sunday morning and you really appreciate the Lord. Lord, I appreciate you. Double thumbs up. But you don't ever express it. And in failure to express what you actually do feel, you miss out. You can appreciate something, but expressing it takes it to a whole other level. Dumb example. Dumb example. Southwest of where we live, way out in the southern frontier of Overland Park, there is a little farm, and he has uh, paint horses. That's not horses that paint. That's a kind of a horse, okay? And they're, they're uh, multicolored, and they are beautiful horses. They are, I was raised with animals. These are not $500 horses, okay? These are very expensive horses. And every time I drive by, I look at them. I really appreciate them. I appreciate that as a beautiful animal. It would be very different, yea, awkward, to go to the guy's door Knock on the door and go, you got pretty horses. I mean, that would just be weird, okay? Not terribly appropriate. It's just horses. But do you understand the difference between appreciate some, appreciating something and expressing a gratitude or, or talking about it? It's so interesting that all 10 of these were willing to go through the religious hoops, but only one in 10 had a grateful heart that was grateful enough to go back and express it. Even pre-COVID, when churches were all full, you had to ask how many were doing their religious duty, going to see the priest, checking in with their pastor, playing the part that says, I appreciate God, and I want to be near him enough to receive some blessing, but not actually expressing gratitude. And in not expressing gratitude, actually getting far less out of the arrangement than they might have if they had gone beyond appreciation. Expressing gratitude takes things to the next level. Verse 19. Jesus is speaking now to the one, the Samaritan who came back, and he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, what's he talking about here? It sounds like Jesus is taking a victory lap, right? Hey, good for you, buddy. I healed you along with the other guys. No, no, that's not actually what he's saying there. Your faith has made you well. That word well is better translated whole, and it refers to him body, spirit, and soul. Those other nine lepers, they just got healed of leprosy. I just changed your life. I made you whole. The other nine thought they got the whole thing. The other nine were grateful for what God had done, and they thought that was it. One of them, the least likely one, was ministered to at the soul and spirit level because the Lord made him whole in his gratitude. 
Your gratitude for God working in your circumstances unlocks a door within you through which God can do more and more and more. The other nine went through life telling the story about what God did. One of them went through life talking about what God was doing in him. I don't want to be people who just talk about what he did. I want to be people who gather every week and go, this is what's going on now. But we only get there through expressed gratitude. I want to ask if uh, our worship team would come back for a moment. Gratitude is action, and it starts with a decision. I want us as a family to make that decision. People who live grateful lives are generally people who just decided to do so. They just make that decision. One of my favorite characters from church history is Matthew Henry. He's written, written extensive commentaries. And I've shared this before in the, in the past. Some of you may have heard this before. But Matthew Henry had made a dedication that he wanted to express gratitude every day of his life. It's just something he wanted to be a part of his natural regimen. And one day he got robbed. He was out walking in the street. A man accosted him, took his wallet. He got home that night and he sat down with his journal where he would express every day what he was grateful for. And he thought, I've been robbed. So he writes in his journal, Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before. He said, I thank you that they took my wallet and they didn't take my life. He wrote, Lord, I thank you that even though they took everything I had, I didn't have much. Then he wrote, Lord, I thank you that today I was the one being robbed and I was not the robber. Gratitude is a discipline. And when we practice that discipline, it gets easier. And easier. By the time he gets to the bottom of this list, he is seeing the goodness of God in his life. Lord, were it not for the grace of God, I could have gone down a different path and I could have been in the guy committing the crime and not the victim. It is a discipline that gets easier as we practice it. Stand with me for a moment. Many of us have received from the Lord in powerful ways, and we're, we appreciate that. just want to take a moment and go back into worship and step into that realm of gratitude and to tell him thank you. In doing so, we unlock the next thing he wants to do. There are things he wants to do in our lives that will necessitate grateful hearts. I want him to find one in us. Father, I just want to take a moment and worship you. Say thank you for all you've done.